Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join us this summer in New York City or virtually from your studio to learn from dedicated artists and expand as a maker in the legendary Marathon program. Rigorous and immersive, marathons unfold over 10 days from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time daily and present an extensive range of art-making strategies, comprehensive critiques, and inspirational discussions. Expansive, first-hand discoveries propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies for understanding one's experience in the world, the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon's conclusion. Generous partial scholarships are available. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Fulcrum Coffee Roasters are a Seattle-based, full-service, wholesale coffee roaster and retailer with over 25 years of experience defined by a focus on premium roast coffee and local and global community. Check out their coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Sound and Vision listeners can get 20% off your order of coffee by using the code ALFREDSTUDIO when you make an online order. Carl Dalvia is an artist who received a BFA from the Rhode Island School of Design in 1987 and splits his time between Connecticut and New York City. He works in a sculptural idiom that is decidedly hypervisual, artisanal, and history-laden. He's developed proprietary sculptural processes that co-opt existing means of traditional industrial production. Drawing on sources that include megalithic monuments, toy design, and the Baroque, the work encapsulates seemingly antithetical motifs such as minimal, ornate, industrial handmade, the comic and the tragic, progress and destruction, and attraction and repulsion. He's had recent solo shows at Hesse Flatau, Natalie Carr Gallery, and Regina Rex in New York, and Gallery Papillon in Paris, as well as previous solo shows at Mulherin and Pollard in 2013, and Derek Eller Gallery in New York in 2008 and 2006. His work has appeared in group exhibitions at numerous venues, including Helena Anrather, Regina Rex, Mother Gallery, the D. Cordova Sculpture Park and Museum, Art Ami, the Journal Gallery, Feature Inc., and White Columns. His work has been reviewed in Art Forum, Flash Art, The New York Times, Hyperallergic, The Boston Globe, Time Out, and The Village Voice. He was awarded the Rome Prize for Visual Arts in 2012 and 2013 from the American Academy in Rome. I spoke to Carl about city and country, parenthood and its effect on art, the draw to sculpting, traveling to Italy, and much more. Here's our conversation. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think I. I think actually, I just did the DIY thing. Yeah. Like you know, my wife and I just moved. We met at RISD. We just moved to New York and just tried to like, you know, 
not be totally broke and get a workspace and produce artwork. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of what you did, right? You just like, oh, I guess I have to either go to New York or LA or Chicago or something and yeah. just try to do it, you know, which is, yeah, that, that kind of was the way it was. I guess now too, because there's so many other ways to connect with people, there's more options. Back then it was kind of like you had to have a studio near New York because how else are people going to see your work otherwise? There was no, no. Yeah, like, I know. photos and stuff, so it was kind of what you had to do. I know. Sometimes it's funny to speak with younger artists or whatever and just say, you know how you had to have people see your work, like in photographic reproduction? You had to get somebody to your studio, get a show, have somebody take a photograph of your piece in the show, and then have that reproduced in a mag- in a print magazine. That was how that worked. So, like, and they wait, just look what? at you like, what? what? <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> was the Civil War going on? Right, Pretty right. much. <laughs> Did you figure that out with an abacus? Like, you know, how much that was going to cost? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was I so know. different, you know? Yeah, it was that that part was very different, but also, I don't know, I guess simpler, like artists have more choices now. Uh, but I think part of like the reason why we lived in the country also was the Internet, you know, like without yeah. the Internet, we wouldn't have moved up here. I mean, it was our like summer place that then became our place place. And certainly the Internet was a huge part. And now, of course, with Instagram and whatever, even more so. And people are more tech all the time. So more people are moving upstate and, you know, doing whatever. Yeah, you can have, you know, more space, more quality of light. You can just slow down. Yeah. That idea that, you know, you could still be connected, but you don't have to be yeah. in the midst. of. I remember when I first saw Tom Friedman speak when I was in grad school and he was talking about how he lived in Massachusetts or something, or he lived mm-hmm. kind of out there. And we were just like, whoa, that seemed really punk rock. Yeah, I think it, I think it kind of was. Even yeah. when we were first here, you know, I mean, whatever, we bought our house here 20 years ago now, but, you know, it was people were like, what? You're doing what? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it shouldn't cost, like if I wanted to transfer that whole setup, I sh- this whole setup I showed you to Brooklyn, like it probably wouldn't cost much, right? Right. Like, it would be easy to do just to, yeah. like, <laughs> have a cavernous studio. <laughs> a giant. Cool, yeah. yeah. Sculptors in the city, it's, like, a different thing, right? I well, mean, I that. think um, that the examples of, like, de Kooning and Pollock and uh, Augustine up in Woodstock, they're always held up as these aberrations. But, in fact, that's kind of what New York artists do at a certain yeah. point. You understand your place in the cultural matrix. You need space and you need money to realize your projects and you need time and you know too many people in town. So every night is somebody's opening pretty much. So mm-hmm. you, you kind of do a, a bit of an isolation and get yourself some more space. And, you know, you have to make your pile of shit basically before you croak. You got to make sure there's enough, <laughs> enough things sitting around so some little grad student could make a case for you right, somewhere down right. the line about how important you are in this link of things. Someone and finds your work. Yeah. <laughs> be like, oh my this God, guy. This, guy, this guy. Yeah. He was this link between whatever and whatever. Uh, but you know, you just, you need to work and you need this, you need, it's, you need the space space, but you need the kind of psychic space, right? Right. Um, and this is a good space. I mean, I think upstate is, or out of the city is getting better and better because there are more artists around. Like, it really helps to have a few yeah. kind of artist pals in the neighborhood that you can just kind of go for a walk or do an impromptu studio visit with. That's really helpful. It's just like the idea, I imagine, too. You know, like, if you're, if you're around... 
you know, like I remember back in the day when Beacon was first starting to percolate, yeah. you know, and I had a couple friends who moved up there and it wasn't like they were going to each other's place every day, but just the idea that if you wanted that studio visit, it could happen within, you know, a few minutes. Yeah. And there's something nice. comforting about that. You know? Oh yeah. Like even to know that they're there, yeah. even if you don't see each other for a few months, like Ellen Altfest is down the road here. Mm-hmm. Um, Carol Dunham and Laurie Simmons are in this town around the, you know, Philip Taff, I could practically hit his studio with a rock from here. So nice. it's just nice to know those guys are there. I and mean, we get yeah. together for a drink or a tea or a walk or whatever, but it's even in the in-between time, it's just, it's nice. It's, it helps with the somewhat, you can feel dislocated sometimes living in the country, right? Because like yeah. most of your audience is not here. You know, it's mostly down in New York. So you... Right. Um, you don't have that feeling like you're working in some beehive and some big studio building and there are all these other artists all around or something. But it's nice to have a few. I think that, that certainly helps. Yeah, it's funny because it's, it's weird how that it happens. There is the beehive. Like, there's a lot of people around me working. But I'm not really... Well, I mean, I guess pre-COVID, when yeah. I'm doing podcasts, I would do most of these in the studio or in their studio. Yeah. But, you know, I wasn't like going and doing studio visits all the time. And I rarely have studio visits. Yeah. So it's not like, even though there's a lot of people around, it's, but it does affect you. It does feel good. Yeah, maybe just it's to know because, they're out there. Yeah, maybe it's because there's so much like BS just getting to the studio and like the hassle of parking and all that crap that you got to balance that with a feeling of like, well, other people are doing it too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, right. So the hour good. long ride on the subway or something. Commiseration. But, yeah, but I guess it's a tech thing, right? Like with the tech, it just, you know, you meet people and you can literally say, okay, 19 of our next 20 interactions are going to be online or whatever. Right. <laughs> it's just kind of the way that it is. It's just so much easier. Yeah. Come over and see the painting. Like, oh, here's the painting. Oh, oh yeah, it looks good, you know, or whatever. Right. It was interesting. I curated a show at Hesse Fletau, the show before my show, and did it all online during the pandemic and it came out great, you know, really interesting, you know, and, um, I mean, it would have been nice to do all those studio visits and to catch up with people, but at the same time it was really pretty efficient yeah. and we got what I thought was a great result doing it that way. So right. I don't know, maybe the tech's better. People are more comfortable with the tech, but we, you know, you need those real world interactions. Someday Definitely. we will meet Brian, Brian, we someday you, we will meet in real life. Actually, I'm going to come up. I'm just going to move into your studio if you like. I'll take that second half. Yeah, bring the whole family. Just <laughs> just come frolic. Yeah, it's, just like pitch a tent. I'll see you guys down there. Like, right. <laughs> living I tell in you what, sh- though. Living in Brooklyn for over a year, like cooped up, I mean, yeah. it really... And you, I saw it with friends and stuff. People were just getting out. Like, they just wanted to find everything oh, yeah. outside because like a yard. Yeah. You know, when you have kids, too, yeah. it's like... Oh, yeah. I only have one, but you know, you feel bad because it's just like, one's enough. It, totally, that's. I have actually, I have one daughter. It's it. People always say like just the one. It's still a big job. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, for sure. And and I think like looking back in retrospect, maybe even more of a big job. It's not really, but because they're just one and they always want to engage. Like it was never like they kept each other busy. Yeah, if you, if you I know. I always thought we were going to have two, but that never happened. But anyway, just so this, I know this is being archived. Uh, my daughter's lovely. She, uh, <laughs> don't want to get in any trouble. And also, all, for the record, also actually, artists out there, if you have a solid partner, have kids. Kids are great. And kids, Oh yeah. I think my daughter having a child made my work 
much better, much more whimsical. All that reading of Dr. Seuss, like it has an kinda, effect, doesn't it? Yeah, it had an effect. <laughs> I really think it had an effect on my work, a really positive effect. My work was a bit darker before, and uh, I think it kind of lightened it up, and it made that kind of contradictory darkness, light toggling thing that I really like, you know, or comic, tragic, serious, you know, whatever those two competing forces are, it kind of ramped that up, uh, I think, and it really helped me. I mean, it was hard at first, of course, to adjust to the new schedule. And you rarely got like eight hours in your studio sitting Mm -hmm. around gazing at your navel. But you'd got into your studio for like two hours and you were like, I got two hours, bang, 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 bang. In a Isn't it funny how like, yeah, in a different you punch way. the clock and you're like, oh yeah. my God, this magic time right now. You become yeah. much more focused when you have that time because yeah. you, know, it's, it, you learn to appreciate it. After I, what I call baby boot camp, which is basically for me was like zero sleep for six months, Yeah, which I'm pretty sure messed me up in some way or another. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but sure. It made me... It was it was like boot camp. Like it you survive you, though. Yeah, you, you survive. survive and you become stronger afterwards. That's right. <laughs> No, I think it's I think it's true. You just get in there and do it and you realize how much time you were kind of wasting before. Oh yeah. And and I think also there's a thing where like you start making these decisions like do I want to do amniocentesis? Hmm, 1 in 200 chance of uh, the kid perishing, but at a certain point, there's a one in 200 chance of certain birth defects. Do I want to do this? Do I, how does this work? You know, or do I vaccinate my kid with all these vaccines? You know, you, you're making these very serious decisions and then you just go into the studio and you're like, okay, red. (laughs) Or like, you know, okay, how about, how about this? You know, this, like in a weird way, it kind of frees you because, you know, in a, the work gets better because, you're not throwing all this stuff on it. You're like, oh, right, this is one thing that I can do in this cultural moment, bang, bang. You, can, you kind of, in a certain way, I don't know, it made, became easier to make those kind of like adult decisions, right? And totally just agree. do stuff. So it's a very me, it specific good. phenomenon, right? Like I feel yeah. like your artwork before you have kids is your kid and you pay too much attention to it yeah. if it's just that one thing. And you, Maybe your dog, but yeah. <laughs> yes, True. Or, yeah, so your goldfish. But yeah. you really put a lot of, you know, I mean, for me, like my the world before my my son was kind of about the work. You know, it was just always worrying about the work or whatever. And then all that becomes decentralized. Like, you know, it, you go in the studio and it's not as grave or it's not like all your eggs yeah. are in that basket. It's Yeah, it's kind of like your job. Thing. It's yeah. like your job. You go in and make decisions and things get done. I think for myself and for my wife too, particularly, it was really good just to to cross that threshold. So yeah. anyway, so special thanks to my daughter for the record <laughs> for helping us become better artists. <laughs> is she a creative person? Uh, she is. Yeah, she's a writer and she just graduated from Bard. Nice. She's... Doing a lot of drawing, so I don't know if she's going to end up doing graphic novels or novels or... I don't know, That's we'll see. Cool. She's starting out, yeah. Graphic novels are amazing. I guess, you know, it's stemming from that Dr. Seuss. Literature, when you have a kid, too, changes. Like, your whole relationship to literature. You know, yeah. it's, you, it's almost like the the fun gets injected back into it, whether you like it or not. And it's kind of whimsical, and there's nothing right. really great about it. I used to work in college at the education library, which was basically checking out kids books to people all the time and right. 
you know, I have a, I just love them. You know, I've always loved kids' books. And then the graphic novel thing, I think, kind of rubbed off from there. I, I wasn't big in, when I was a kid into comics, were you? I was, yeah. You were a big comic guy? Yeah. I, th- I feel was. like most people were. I don't know how I missed the bus on what, that. But what happened? I don't know. We were just, we, <laughs> my family didn't have any money and there were no comic book shops around me. So I think. Are you going to give that whole story like walking through the snow and doing your homework on the back of a coal shovel? That kind of. How'd you know? I, I knew it. <laughs> trudging through, yeah. Trudging through the snow. Yeah, my yeah. son, my son keeps making fun of me because I keep doing the old man things. Well, when I was a kid, yeah, yeah I do that too. Yeah. I know. Yeah, they, they don't care. The best of us. Yeah, they don't care. By the way, about that. No, just, not at all. No. As soon zero. as you start in with it, the look on the face is perfect. Yeah. It's just a. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like you're ranting you, again. Are yeah. you ranting again? I'm not ranting. I'm just talking. That's no, a rant. And I hold back on a lot of it, so. I know. Imagine, you know. imagine if you let go. Imagine if you let loose. I know. Yeah, that I would know. be a good scene. I don't think. No, no, but it is interesting too. Like, it's interesting for me even to think of this current show I have up and the whimsical nature of the work. Like, would that have happened without a kid? And I don't think it would have actually. Yeah. But you know, the sort but of anthropomorphic fun of it. Yeah, I mean, there's even. I mean, with these, there's even like a kind of playground aspect. You know. Yeah. Uh, but also I am thinking about something that my kids said, one of my favorite things that she did when she was little, like in her car seat or whatever. And, um, she, we were driving and then it was nighttime and she was like, dad, we're like, where do the trees go at night? Like, where do they all go? It's pretty good. You know? And yeah, this yeah. idea, and it was like this magical idea, like as if they all go to like lay down in some giant place where trees sleep or something you know because maybe they're tired from standing up all right, the it's time it's gonna be exhausting right and so when like applying that kind of thing to like minimal sculpture right like maybe they're tired maybe yeah, they yeah. gotta lie down or, or just that kind of magical thinking that right. you just forget about right like all sorts of magical thinking kind of comes back in like on your radar screen for the first time uh you know whatever in years since you were a kid since you were Which, disabused of all that stuff. Right. It got squashed out of us. Yeah, like in high school, kind of the reason you tried to me. be cool. Yeah, yeah right. It's When suddenly you're like, oh man, like I got to be cool. I got to like, you know, whatever. And then, but prior to that, yeah, right. It's, it is the reason for being. I mean, it's kind of, what else is there other than, than that? I, don't, I think that's why, you know, creative people, like artists make work is because they're, you're trying to tap into that thing that's undefinable. And, and play in that mode where it's not rote, you know what I mean? It's just something yeah. that you can find or there's moments of uncertainty. But the parallel to existence is you have to be certain, you have to get a job, you have to be stable. Like everything, you know, yeah. you want to be responsible. And responsibility, while good for certain aspects, can sometimes suffocate creativity. Right. It's complicated. I agree that relationship because often artists are like the most practical people, you know, because in order to support this highly impractical and let's say fiscally fiscal roller coaster that artists deal with or whatever, you need to be practical. You need to be a kind of stable person. So often. So, I mean, that's also I feel like that's not what they tell you in the textbook. It's like whatever it's like Baudelaire was like living in the gutter and 
you know, drinking absinthe all day and writing his poetry. It's like, you know what, actually, it's like he probably had like a great aunt who had some money and set him up in a decent apartment. And he figured out how to manage some stuff so he could have his freakiness and that crazy conversation. So I feel like that's that often happens. But you do have to, you know, it's sometimes an uncomfortable relationship. Definitely. And, and a lot of times I think those artists who were really talented but lived their life in that way kind of curtailed or offset what they could have done in a way. Like if you look at someone like Coltrane, you know, like in that time period, everyone's like, well, yeah, heroin. Like people were just doing drugs, you know what I mean? Yeah, But right, it messed sure. them up. I like, killed it. Like Charlie Parker. Sure, Charlie derailed, Parker. Listen. You know? Charlie Parker didn't make 40. Yeah. yeah I mean, he would have, you know, so... It's it's kind of like this romanticized or like well it was just part of the the biz or the you know the I, way yeah. you were. I love the alternate that. history where those guys are sitting around. Then they got really into crunching the numbers. They became like executives. They were right, like, right. and they the had taxes. Like, yeah, and they had like test test audiences. Like, how, what do you guys think about this jam ending? No, that's not good. Well, that's not going on the album. Hold on, hold on. What does this group think about that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I think of that alternate ending every time I see um, Keith Richards. I'm like, man, that guy yeah, is still that's going. Tr- that's true, actually. He is the alternate ending. He, he really is. It's like, if they made it, like he encapsulates that forever. Yeah, yeah. No, that's an inter- interesting contrast. I kind of know but, how he did it. Yeah. No, I know. He Lucky. Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly luck is, is part of it. But, you know, sometimes artists also... You know, their whole careers, they don't always get better also, or they have like kind of fallow periods or, you know. Definitely. Know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? So I don't know. I've come to realize lately how kind of special a thing it is to be an artist and to create stuff and to kind of stay in this artistic conversation, particularly as I get older. It's like hard... It's like you don't think you're ever going to fall out of the conversation, but you kind of can. And you kind of can lose touch with your work in a way that it's like you're making things, but then, you know, I don't want to get too hokey, but it's just like, they're, you know, they shouldn't just be widgets. Right. You know, they should be containers for some other kind of energy, right? And that's like a special kind of magic trick, essentially, that you do with like mud or colored mud and somehow turn it into this thing that's like encapsulating something. And you need to, um, I guess I've come to realize that I need to treat that a little bit gently and to be a little bit protective of that because that may not last forever, which was something I never thought about when I was younger, but I think about it now. That also wasn't in a textbook. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was not in a textbook. Yeah, that was in the like how to keep the love alive one hundred and one class or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they don't give that to you for relationships too or anything really. They don't tell you about the after. It's always about how to get to something. Yeah, it but always then what what happens after that. Yeah, the rom com always ends when the couple like find each other and it's like they either get together or it's like after all the drama and conflict or right at the altar. Right. Who was I talking with about this the other day? And they were talking about the last scene in the graduate. 
Oh, you remember that scene? scene? I haven't seen it in so long. Okay, she's marrying the scene. The bus scene. Yeah, the bus scene. Yeah, she's marrying the other guy. He comes, gets. They, you know, she runs away with him. He jams yeah. that cross in the. I love that he breaks the cross off right, and right. jams it, so they can't follow them. And uh, they get on the bus, but then there's this weird shot of the two of them where they just look like lost and weird for a second, like oh shit, kind of like what have we done, like. You know, we've we've now sailed away. It's like the beginning of the journey, and it's so rare. And it's so rare you see that expressed in film, or you know, because it's it's usually just this glorious um, right. a bow on the end of it. You know, yeah, pretty much, yeah. So I, I, I like, and when I was a kid, I remember seeing that and just being really puzzled by that, actually. And like, what what happened? Why do they look weird and sad and kind of lost? Like the the whole thing just worked out for them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's just the beginning. Yeah, that's the genius of that. Same thing with uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but Lost in Translation, mm-hmm. with at the ago. end, at the end where Bill Murray whispers that in her ear, and then they just leave. It's like, well, what, what did he say to her, and what do they do? Like, does it continue, or what is it? I mean? can't remember. He whispers, but we don't hear what he whispered. Yeah, like he he hops, he sees her after they already say their goodbye, and he sees her on the street, and he hops out of the cab, and he walks over to her, and he like embraces her for a second, and he whispers something in her ear. Oh, you can't I don't hear it. That. And oh, they look at each other and then they walk away and you're like, what was that? You know? Oh, what? really interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, those cool. are, I, it must take great restraint or, you know, it, it probably takes a lot of balls to like make a, a scene like that in an ending of a movie, you know? But Oh, yeah. I thought that was really good. It's easy compared to art. <laughs> Art's much harder. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. It really is. Yeah. Though. Yeah. It's, it really is. No, I, actually, I think about that sometimes when I have to do my thing, dealing with, you know, whatever, like foundries, fabricators, and I think, I don't have to do a feature film, I don't have to raise $100 million. Right. I just need, like, you know, what I need. hundred grand would be nice. But, you know, it's like, it's at least that's a number that, like, you could kind of get your head around. It's like... Right. It, <laughs> it's relatable to your experience in life. <laughs> right it's somewhat like you you know how many zeros there are and like you could do and then you think about having to deal with like you know producers and talent you know and so on and trying to get that if that were your vision to get that whole thing together so sometimes i like to think about that and it makes my problems like i'm like oh, okay i can do this yeah that i mean i guess you just really embrace that collaborative process as complex and weird as that could get you know but yeah i can't yeah, imagine I, that yeah, I guess, well, you know, like everybody probably solves it in different ways. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, if you've never seen it, I highly recommend the uh, that Heart of Darkness movie. I haven't. That, you've seen Apocalypse Now, though, right? Yeah. So uh, Coppola's wife, I think her name was Elaine, Elena. Anyway, she, she took a lot of footage of the making of Apocalypse Now, and the stuff that happened during that movie. First of all, uh, Harvey Keitel was the original lead, and he deci- and after filming a bunch of scenes, Coppola said, "This isn't working. We got to bring Martin Sheen in." That's crazy. Brought Martin Sheen in, reshot everything, and then Martin Sheen had a heart attack, and like almost died. Oh and God. so then he's thinking, "I got ha- okay. Of course you're worried about Martin Sheen, but half the movie shot now again." Yeah, and. And uh, there was a rebel insurgency in the Philippines where they were filming. So, like, the helicopters were constantly being taken to fight the rebels while they were, like, trying to use them to shoot scenes. Then there was, like, one of the worst monsoons. Uh, 
I guess they felt like that recent, it was jinxed, right? <laughs> like recent memory, right? And they <clears throat> ruined a bunch of these sets that they had constructed, like those temple sets at the end. Yeah. And then, and I think like the producers just pulled out. They're like enough, and so he mortgaged his house. Coppola, everything he had made from the Godfather movies, he just pushed all the chips in on that movie. Like in it this, worked. In, and it worked. But you, the shots of him too, are great because he's interviewed in the film, and you see he's like obviously on the edge of his mind, right? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's one thing. It's really easy to say afterwards when it all worked out, right? You know, yeah, it's yeah. Like I, but in the midst of it, just to see him like kind of losing it, it's. It's actually, I mean, it's interesting. It's a testament to him as an artist, but it's also just a reminder sometimes of like the things you, you know, that you go through to try and achieve your vision. You try and yeah. hold on to that vision and, you know, that's it. You see the thing, you have the vision, but to achieve that is a whole different, uh, whole different animal. Yeah. And sometimes the struggles or the obstacles become integral to the work itself. You know, it's kind of yeah. like it, it, it effectively will charge it because I'm sure that movie was charged by that atmosphere because that you know that movie is so anxious and like you know there's so much tension I'm guessing that really relates to the experience and I think he he wanted to replicate the Vietnam War in a way like he wanted to just drag Americans into the jungle with too much equipment too many drugs and just kind of have a certain amount of that in some kind of jazzy way. Like, let's see where that leads us. Yeah. Um, and I think you feel that uh, in the movie for sure. Yeah, there were a lot of those. I mean, were you a big movie buff growing up? Did you watch a lot of films? Mm-hmm. Was that your thing? I don't know if it was my thing. Like, first it was just, like, entertainment or whatever. And then it's like, you're like, oh, yeah, right, this is an art form. And then you try and see things in some systemic way to understand, like, that cinematic universe. But... I don't know if I'm quite cinephile. I don't know if junior cinephile. I, I can't anoint myself there, but I like movies. <laughs> you watched a lot. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't really grow up with a lot of movies. But then in college, there was a good video store, and yeah. they would have like twenty-five cent rentals or something. So with right. the classics. So I tried. To, yeah. I felt like I needed. To, it was coming up in classes and stuff, and I hadn't seen all these like you know French new wave movies. I was like, what the heck? Right. What are they talking about? So I tried to yeah. like you know catch up. But, um, but yeah, I, I did the same. It, it's great stuff. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. I, I haven't stuck oh, yeah. with it, but my son is a real movie fanatic and he's going into film in high school. So it's just, it's almost like being force fed back into it. Like, I've seen every Marvel thing now for, yeah. and they're, they're pretty good. Like, you know, yeah. I don't know how to, to address it in my mind because it's so linked together with, you know, family and that stuff. But it, you know, I'm entertained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you could also say they're kind of undeniable. Yeah. There's no, you know, you can't fight it. Men in tights will be back. They but always return. Yeah, but sometimes for me it's interesting. It's like when I read that as a kid, it was like nobody really cared. Or like there was a Spider-Man animated series. And yeah. they were also kind of weird and kind of like nerdy. Like that was... Before, like, nerd, nerds or nerd chic was even a thing. Nerds could be cool. It was not cool. You know, before the revenge of the nerds, before the, the wealthiest guys in the country were the computer guys, it was like being nerdy was not cool. Oh, you just, it's I, a ticket to get your ass kicked. Like, yeah. you would just get beat up. There was no 
patina of like <laughs> you know of yeah. an advantage. Well, yeah, we had the we had the word brainiac. What are you a brainiac? Oh yeah, that was a great was, band actually. That brainiac was a band. Oh, I don't know the band. Yeah, anyway, yeah, brainiac. It was a super nerdy thing to do to read comics. Like it was not to be advertised in any way. It yeah. was just kind of like all on the DL, and now suddenly it's like they're the biggest grossing, you know, Hollywood products. So. Yeah, it's not not cool now. That's for sure. Yeah, well, it's maybe not cool on the other end or something, but right, right. Anyway, it's not. Bomb. But no, there's a there's a lot to see. I feel like I need to re-see a lot of the stuff. I had the same. I was like, young guy in New York. We would go to Kim's video and talk oh, yeah. to the pimple faced kid about what's you know. He's like, oh man, you got to watch this or whatever. You know, he was. Then he got on the thing. Oh, if you just saw that, if you just saw that by Kurosawa, you got to see this or something. You know, yeah, and then yeah, you, yeah. you sort of get on that thing, and uh, it was really great. That's cool. Yeah, I always went downstairs to the music, and then they would have you know the the elitist like music snobs down there who had their little CD top tens with their name on it and stuff. It's great. Oh, uh, yeah, like the the little employee picks. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It had yeah. such an air of like nerdy gravitas that like you couldn't touch their curated collection of. It was so diverse, and you know what I mean. It, but right. it was yeah. It, it really like made me want to know what this stuff was. Because, yeah, know, again, pre-internet, you just had to find records and figure out what right. it was, you know. I know, and the funny thing about the internet sometimes, if you existed before and after, is that <clears throat> it it's a kind of false encyclopedic presentation that's not really encyclopedic. Like, there's tons of things that aren't on Netflix, or there were tons of artists in New York who, like, didn't make it to the internet, you know yeah. what I mean? And then it's almost like they didn't exist, which is kind of crazy. And it's almost like, actually, it does feel that way. Like you didn't exist if you didn't make it into the internet. But there was a lot of stuff. Uh, that's what's strange about it. That kind of, that pseudo encyclopedic uh, kind of presentation, right? Um, which which is is problematic. Is it worse than encyclopedias, though? Because those were advertised as encyclopedias, but they obviously left out a whole swath of like culture. And I think it's worse because it's not even advertised as that. It just is felt that it's that. Do you know what right. I mean? Like oh, yeah, everything's yeah. on the oh, everything's on the internet. Well, actually, right. it's not. Yeah, um, which is interesting too. It is really interesting. It's it's exploded out linearity. I think for a lot of people. Which is something that I have a hard time acclimating to because everything that I learned was in this sort of, um, you know, hierarchy of linearity. Like this right. influenced sure. this and, you know. Right. So, like, if I'm doing, teaching a painting class and I play, like, Herbie from, you know, the 70s, like the funk prog stuff, and people are like, oh, this sounds like smooth jazz or, you know, like, I can't. I have to think about things linearly, so it right it, sure it, it's a it's just a way I think we learned back then. Yeah, and now it's just like whatever you just grab it, you know. No, yeah, no, it's true. Context removed if needed. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yes, I kind of agree, and I think that even it, it was a way to learn. Even though you learn that it's kind of bullshit, but it's still like at least some kind of structure. Right. Or even just having CDs or albums stacked on a shelf. Like now it's like, where are they in terms of like, I don't know. They're in the cloud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's really, it's I, I'll tell you, I li- you know, this whole, I showed you that this whole, this house has a giant bookshelf. 
And I lived without my books for a few years and I was so happy to take them out, even though I don't necessarily read them very often, but I love looking at the spines. I love going by and thinking, oh, right, that book at that time. And then I go, oh, I should read that again. Or like, you know, just seeing those spines, having them represented here, the books that were important to me um, and physically is, is, you know, even people say, oh, you don't read them. It doesn't matter. You walk through, you look at the book. They're there. You think of, then you look at the spot. Where did I go? Oh, my grandmother. Oh, that was part of her thing. I got the, oh, that was when we went on that trip to Sicily and I bought that book about Baroque architecture. I remember that trip or whatever. You know, you, I was just thinking that yesterday. So you have this kind of different relationship when everything is kind of out and when you don't have to like type something into a search bar, basically. Yeah. It's like a photo album, but it's like a different kind of experience. I have the same thing. I built one under our kitchen, like overhang. It's filled with books. And like, we don't read at one point. My wife was like, well, we should get rid of some of our clutter. Like we could get rid of the books. And I was like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's don't. no way we're getting rid of those. And no. we don't read them that much, but yeah, but they're, they're just, they're just there. It's not like you take pictures off the wall because you don't look at them every single day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. You or like rotate. you would, you would take a picture down because you don't think about that trip to Niagara Falls every time you look at it. It's mm. like, no, it's it's there if you need it, and it can remind you of the experience. But you know, the, those kind of things are important. I think. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting just to think about whatever different modalities of learning. Yeah, for sure. And you know, your own paradigm or whatever. Like how you got to where you got to what you got to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can I quote you on that? <laughs> that I, I think I just. We got to put that in the quotes, the liner notes we, for this talk. Yeah. Oh, for sure. How you so, got to where you got to. Well, speaking of where you got to, so do you feel kind of comfortable because didn't you, you were born in Sleepy Hollow or did you grow up there? I was born there and I grew up in Croton on Hudson, a few towns to the north. So it's comparable Nearby. to your, your locate, your sort of proximity to the city now and your, because you're out in nature, but you're still, you know, pretty close to New York. Yeah, I, it is. For sure. Do you feel comfortable in that sense, I would imagine? Yeah. I mean, you know, I miss the city and I was there. I've been there a lot lately because I have a show up. But in the before times, like once a week, go to the city for yeah. like a night or two. But um, no, I lo- I'm like a nature boy. I love to hike, um, stuff like that. I'm a pretty serious fly fisherman, actually. So I like to get out in nature and that's all good. Yeah. Um, I like to be honest. I like to have both. I love to be able to toggle between both. Well, you it makes know, sense. Tog- I mean, if you grew up that way, you know, you grew up in proximity to it, and now you're there, and you really only need the city a couple days, really. You know? Yeah, it kind of. Yeah, it's true. The relationship has changed. It's like, I mean, I love the city, but I do find it tiring after a fashion. I need, I need smaller doses, and yeah. and in a way, back to that thing of like you know, kids and being more efficient. You just go to the city, you make your appointments, you see your shows, you see your people, bang, bang, and then you go out and yeah. then you're in fresh air and in the woods again. Which kind of nice. Honestly, it's kind of like that in Brooklyn. Yeah, no, it's true. Brooklyn like has I'm that ass. Here all the time. Once in a while I go over, see some shows, see, yeah. see the gallery people that come back. No, it's true. My wife and I thought at the time, should we just move to Brooklyn? Like, why are we getting this place out of the city? But... It just kind of happened as it happened, and then here I am. Air? Maybe air quality? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, the commute back and forth can be a bit much at times, but I don't know. It just, it just kind of happened. 
I'm a, I yeah. love driving. So for me, that's oh, you a, do? Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I love it. I loved it more before I lived in the country. Yeah, like when it's twenty minutes to get anything here, then twenty minutes back. So it's easy to drive like two hours in a day if you're not careful. Yeah, that's true. So you, I start ganging up my errands, but I don't. I like to drive too. That's all cool. But yeah, I grew up in a small town, so I, you know, so I get it. Um, it's interesting. It's different over here for sure. This is a well, really small town. Yeah. Were you uh, in growing up? Were you into art as a kid? Was it the comic book thing? Were you into music? Art. I mean, I was basically that. Yeah, I was just like drawing and making things from the time I was forever. Was that were your parents creative? Did that stem from them? You know, it's interesting. My mom became a hobbyist sculptor, but she told me at the end of her life that she started doing it because of me. Like we would oh, go on cool. walks and I would find things and I would do drawings afterwards and then like to make things. And then she, she like had a little ceramic studio. And, uh, and then at a certain point, I just like to draw like motorcycles and like comic book guys. And then she was like, come make something in the studio. And I would like under duress go and make something and then go back and like sit in my room and like draw. And then when I went to RISD, I don't know, I just suddenly, I went and, you know, you have to, when you do freshman foundation there, you have to take painting, um, excuse me, you have to take figure drawing, 2D design slash painting and uh, 3D. And I just suddenly was gone uh, in the 3D department, interestingly, and I didn't expect that and I, one of the nice things about being with other artists at art school is you see how they're seeing, like I would look at the model and I realized that these people were seeing these like Matisse, like occasionally I would see it, like some bright pink next to some like blue. But yeah. for the most part, my I was like an ant, like mapping the structure. I was always mapping. And once I got to figure modeling, I was just kind of like gone. Yeah. And that kind of started me on everything really. Did you also... Um, sort of respond to the faculty in sculpture a little more directly? Or was it just merely the materiality that really drew you to three dimensions? I Yeah, I guess it was just, I really loved the figure at that yeah. time. I thought I was going to be doing figures for the rest of my life. And I, the guys I connected with in the department were the old guys who were like on their way out, who had been like figure modeling guys. And the ethos at the time was like this post-minimal... Like they were wanted you to make something that looked like an axe in a surfboard with pigment all over it or something. And I was like, what? So, <laughs> I mean, interestingly now, of course, my work is intersecting with post-minimalism, you right. know, so, so, okay, they won. They, okay. Yeah, yeah, you can run, but you can, you can hide. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, so, I don't know. And I just started, I would audit figure modeling classes in like continuing ed at night and I was really into it. And, uh, you know, did their European honors program, went to Italy to study in Rome oh, and like cool. did all that, drew all the like you know, masters. For, for that yeah. Stuff. yeah. And I was just, and then suddenly slowly things turned over the years and here I am with these whimsical monoliths slumping over each other. So <laughs> <laughs> you kind of cast that off in a very quick, just a quick, just a quick second over. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's funny. And I tried to do some figure drawing a few years ago. It's just kind of couldn't, I couldn't go home again. Yeah. I mean, I could kind of do it, 
of course, you know, because whatever, you have a skill set, but right. I didn't have the energy. I the didn't have, sort of. yeah, I didn't have yeah. that same connection. There wasn't that spark. It was like kind of ex-partner or something. You're like, yeah, you're, you're, you're okay. Well, in these early figurative stages, what, are, what materials are you talking? Like you're sculpting? Clay and plaster, clay and like plaster. super, yeah, I did just clay and plaster for a long time. A little bit of wood carving. Now was it was Italy the first time you traveled to Europe when you went yes. to school? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Was it mind blowing? <laughs> totally blew my mind. Yeah. Completely. Are yeah, you I Italian? Never... I am, yeah. My I background's mean, not Italian. To, not to judge by the name, but it sounds like That's okay. Name. Yeah, well you're looking at me. You're looking at this Italian mug on your I can't computer. tell I can never tell what people <laughs> like, look at me. I'm just like, what is this? It's like a mix of all sorts. I've stopped trying to decipher. <laughs> Decide no, I, well my name is not typically Italian. It could be like Portuguese. Some people even think it's French or whatever. Uh, yeah. But uh yeah, so yeah, so in a way it had that like going back to the homeland thing and but I don't know. I just got off the plane. I went I walked to the Pantheon and I was like, what? Like those are Isn't it crazy? Co- giant col- Roman what? Still, and, like, and then I like had a cappuccino at one of those bars. I was like, what? This is like yeah, the that's... best thing that's ever touched my mouth. You know? <laughs> and then you look at everybody's so well dressed. You're like, what? Like why? First of all, I'm never going back. Second of all, <laughs> why did my family leave? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's hard to figure out too, right? You have some gelato and you're like, oh, that's it. It's over. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> Why would I leave? Yeah, I know. It, well, yeah, it's kind of, um, I don't know. It's when you're there for a while, you see how tight society is. It's such a lovely place, but it's tight. Like yeah. they figured it out. They got their clubs. Yes. And uh, you're not part of it. Right. It's specific. It's like, this it, is what we do. I remember, yeah. if, if I'm not mistaken, I think when I was in, Italy, I, I wanted a cappuccino and it was like after morning. It was really weird, sudden realization because it was so good when I had, like, I'm a coffee aficionado. That's my thing. You got to have one vice. Mine is coffee. You can have a couple. So coffee is my big one. And, you know, when I first went to Verona and had a cappuccino, I mean, it's just different. You know, it was so good. And I was like, well, I'm going to have that five times a day. And then that didn't fly. No. Like, that's not what we do. You know? Yeah. Well, everything is has that relationship I came to realize to the mass or something. Like, no, no, no. It's not what we do. We do it this way at this time. This right. happens at this time. That happens. Everything. And it takes Americans a while to get used to that. Like, you can't just say, oh, I'm hungry at four in the afternoon. There's, like, nothing to eat. Right. This is your, your lunch window is, like, one to two thirty. After yeah. that, don't. It's closed. All it's, yeah, not going to happen. Yeah, it's not. None of that's going to happen. Everything comes. You know, the seasonal food comes. This is when we eat. That you know, this is when we drink the new wine. This is when we eat the car, the artichokes. This is when you know, so on and so on. It's not so. Yeah, and the coffee thing very specific. Yeah, can, no, especially after lunch, you cannot have a big milky coffee that people will just. It's like for them, it's like watching a car crash. They just can't. Yeah. They, <laughs> like when you go to Japan and people wear shoes inside of a house or something. It's, exactly. It's like that. It's like so... Like, how could you? <laughs> yeah, I know. I remember when I was in Japan, I slammed the door of a taxi. I think I broke the guys. You know, those oh, like because they close automatic. I know. 
I did a super yeah. guy jeans special, Oopsie. like this huge guy yeah, I could yeah. barely fit, got out. I'm like, thank you, you know, I got go some house, go some house, like <laughs> slam. And like, oh. Guy's like running out with his white gloves and like, oh my God. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, that's how we learn. That's, yeah. <laughs> got to make mistakes. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's the way it is. Um. So, but yeah, I would imagine that, that as a sculptor or someone with a figure going there must have been pretty... Because you go and you see these things that you've only seen in art history books and they're just right there and it's kind of amazing. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, for me, everything kind of began there too. Like, um, and oddly, I was just talking about this in an interview I did for the catalog I'm doing for my show and a guy named Julian Rose, who's an architecture, more of an architecture critic and writer interviewed me because uh, he had a great response to the work. And we were talking about Borromini. And when I first saw Borromini and those like facade, those Baroque facades that were like, like as if somebody had like blown up the building yeah, and yeah. everything had swelled a little. And that kind of, I don't know, plumpness, sexiness, and also like weird anxiety that's kind of created with that, those form shifts. And I remember very specifically, I was in the courtyard uh, of San Carlo de Cuatro Fontana, right next door. There's a courtyard. It's very simple, not like the church, which is a famous interior. But there are these balusters on the railing above this courtyard, and they're they're just inverted. Every other one, every other yeah. one is just flipped around. That's all it is. And there's a slight bulging to the walls. Just and I was like, I remember standing distinctly in that space and just feeling that whimsy and that playfulness but also that some kind of deadly craft seriousness right everything was done like so perfectly really complicated but also just like this i'm just going to flip stuff around you know that really really affected me and i think it's it kind of set me on this path a little bit this kind of contradictory thing that i do right like the idea you could be really serious and be kind of a goofball and like playful at the same time right like those things could could have a kind of conversation and that kind of and of course Bormini famously killed himself you know after doing all these beautifully whimsical buildings so it's again it's like it's that that kind of tension or that toggling that's kind of the interesting thing yeah but it's really I think in in one's work to find that kind of like those little nuggets where you feel like it's almost like a boiled down condensed Right. idea that you really respond to yeah it both fuels your work and it also for me it, it it really brings interest into why you are interested in that sort of thing you know so yeah like, right speaking to japan like when i see japanese prints when i was a kid i went to the mm-hmm. carnegie museum and saw this van gogh japanese print show and it blew my mind i didn't know what the hell they were i didn't know anything about japan yeah, and sure. japanese prints but i was just like those look cool and i'm into it and i don't know why you know yeah, and to this right. day i'm still infatuated with the sensibility of those things yeah yeah i yeah. don't really know why but there's something there's got to be a reason you know and but it gives you like that special inspiration in making your own yeah. work. You know? that spark or that yeah. aha moment right you don't need to know right that's the thing you don't need to know no it's you like just some- need it's uncon. It can be unconscious, like yeah. resonating with something else that you could never explain. Right. You just feel it. Like that's the important thing is to feel that spark, and to like or that breadcrumb trail or something, and you like follow that thing. 
you know, yeah. like a hound dog on the trail, like get excited. You feel something. You don't even know why. I think sometimes it's better not to know why. Definitely. Yeah. It's when like you try a buzz to figure kill. it out, you destroy it, you know? Right. It's like, hey, this is a party. This is really fun. I don't know why it's fun. Maybe we should try and dissect why we're having fun at the party. <laughs> like, I don't know. Is it the keg? Is it the pool? Like, what is it? You know, maybe you should just have fun. Like, you know what it, not, it isn't? It, it's not the kid in the corner talking about how cool the party is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what ruins it. Just like right. the kid at the punk show is talking about how punk the punk show is, you know? Right. Yeah, but when you hear cool. a Ramon song, you, if you're inclined, it might you might feel that whatever it is you know what I mean yeah that, oh like, yeah yeah this is you know like growing up when I heard like Minor Threat and the Ramones or stuff like that I was yeah. like there's something and the same thing like when I first heard like Public Enemy you know right. I was like there's something here I don't know yeah. why I don't yeah, want to explain it, it but I love it you know that's funny because my very first concert was a Ramones at the pier in New York and I, I didn't I, really know know much about them but my friend said oh hey let's just go I got these okay I'll go and I just went and they just came out on stage and just, you know, all in their black leather jackets, black hair, whatever, and just went one song after another, no break, no yeah. break, just one, one, one. And I was like, what the f- is this? This is just insane. An onslaught. Was it a little faster than it would be on record? I imagine yeah, they were probably. Amped. It was. Yeah, it was amped up. Everything was like, nah, 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 nah. Yeah. like just super like that. It was great, you know? And uh, yeah, just super great. They had like but 14 yeah, a, of those espressos, you know, and yeah, they just knocked yeah. out those jams. Yeah, I know. I don't know how they did it. I was like shocked that they could just do that. It was so high energy. But yeah, I guess that's the thing. You have to just stay open to these experiences, try not to prescribe and, you know, to, you know, it's that same kind of, I remember, it's, I don't know what, who, whose quote it is, but like, you know, if you go to the, go to the orchestra to like get culture, you're not going to get anything. <laughs> yeah. if if you let yourself get transported by the music and experience and so on. I think with art, there's obviously a lot, you know, where people want it to be all be kind of distilled in some kind of theory way and make a certain amount of sense. But of course, like, you know, you have to let yourself go along. Before. I'm a big fan of like taking a leap and doing something you don't know exactly what you're doing and then later kind of analyzing later backing up and going hey why was it what does that mean why was i interested in that what is what lineage is this actually connected to uh but if you don't take those leaps it, it's really hard to like construct something interesting it seems yeah. to me right it's just definitely i mean when you made the leap from that sort of figurative work into more abstract like i don't know exactly how long that took or like to where the work became a little more formal and kind of like mm -hmm. about these shapes and forms i mean does was that something that you were just it happened organically or were you really compelled by you know sculpture and architecture that was dealing with that kind of like morphing of forms but then you have an element of humor and play in the work as well so like how long did it take for that all that stuff to kind of gel together it's kind of um i'll tell you I'll tell you, Brian. I'm here. <laughs> you ready, man? I'm ready. Okay. This is what you I ready? paid for. Are you ready, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> it's time that you have the experience. Um, I was... It happened super organically, basically, uh, studio practice. I was working on these animals and figures, and I started kind of working more on the animals, and they had furry texture and then the furry texture got more and more intense and 
some of them were on rectilinear sculptural bases and the fur started to grow over the bases. And one of them actually, I uh, can send you an image, but it's like one of the base actually like migrated inside the figure. It was kind of like holding its own base, mm-hmm. all covered with a super texture. And then the bases just started popping off and I would texture them in this furry way. And so I'd have these rectilinear minimal shapes textured. And I was like, oh my God, I could like, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can kind of, I can have my Baroque freak show and this kind of discreet, you know, austere object in this lineage of minimalism or design. So that's kind of how it started. And then from there, you know, it's kind of a hop, skip and a jump. I had done a monolith piece a number of years ago, over 10, maybe 15, that was all furry. And then, um, I don't know, I won the Rome Prize actually a few years ago. When I was there, I was doing drawings of this monolith and then I just started making it slump down. And like, and I was like, and then I just got really interested in that idea. And um, I, when I got back, and I started the piece there, did I finish it there? Anyway, I. I did a piece with this kind of slumped down monolith figure, kind of slumping in on itself, but kind of sitting. And then uh, I made a mold, cast it in bronze. But then I was thinking, why did I make a mold of this? We could probably fabricate this. And I had this idea then that we could just cut the shapes in metal and roll some you know, curves and fabricate it. And so I started looking around for guys to help me do it. And in my little town in the country, there happened to be these guys who opened a fabrication shop. And I got connected with them. They're called 21 Bridge Design. And so we just did a few pieces together and worked out great. And you could get scale. It, you know, like you could do things at scale um, that were harder to do modeling and also, frankly, price-wise, like with trying to like make a mold and cast it in bronze. Yeah. So I started thinking about scaling up. And then, of course, like, just inhabiting a bit of that tradition of like the seventies sculptor guy, you know, Tony Smith or Sugarman or Lieberman or those guys. And just start thinking about that tradition, Calder and kind of, kind of playing around with that. And I think that that's like the trajectory that led to the current show. Yeah. It's, it's funny because, um, I never had that sort of, um, anger or distrust of minimalism. I, even when I didn't know what the hell it was, uh, Robert Ryman and like Blinken mm-hmm. Malermo, those people were interesting to me because I was just like, wait, wait, how, what, you know, like how did that happen? Right. And um, and then I really grew to love it, you know, over, you know, the years of being in an art school. And it's funny because in thinking about that combination between minimalism and play. Uh, traditionally, there was this sort of geometric rigidness to minimalism, and then it sort of opened up a little bit mm-hmm. to a little bit of rounding the edge, but not not much. It was, you know... Yeah, well, what's kind of interesting about that is with this new show of mine, people have been talking a lot about Primary Structures, which was the first minimalist show in the U.S. in 1966 at the Jewish Museum. Mm-hmm. But if you look at some of the images, they're really still playful, yeah. Like it's kind of interesting like it like so maybe minimalism will have gone from this like playfulness to like a kind of Donald Judd puritanism to right. playfulness. But it's been a kind of oddly open language, surprisingly so. Yeah. So we'll see. No, I I think that's that's true. And you know, it, there's different levels of it as well because if you think about you know, someone like Agnes Martin, I mean there's a play in those sure. images into their unrigidness even though 
90% yeah, no, of the public true. might say, well, these are kind of stiff or they're just right. lines or whatever, but they're not. They're really sort of no. playful. Or on the o- a kind of similar on the other end would be like, you know, Banks Violet? Yeah, of course. Like those things yeah. that are like related to that, but on a whole other, you know, side of that, which is kind of interesting. There, it's a good example for me of like how open the language can continue to be. Yeah, I think maybe it, it really is. And that's it's interesting because it might be some uncharted territory, but maybe it's um, artists feel that it's kind of a landmine situation because there is such a vehement reaction to it a lot of times, you know. Ah, oh, lighten up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think, well, I think any any time you engage, a, let's say, like a tradition or even a thing, like any, like, you know, what's that whole Rosalind Krauss thing about the grid, how every artist thinks they're discovering the grid? Oh, yeah. And then, mean, and of course, it ends up being a prison, right? Literally, <laughs> like you can't get out of it. Like, be careful, you know. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, certainly a tradition like minimalism is pretty could be pretty heavy. Um, so you have to watch it. But it also seems open. I don't know. What's to reason? Me, it, it's not like it's been mined that much. You know what I mean? In the sense, yeah. Of, as opposed to like Baroque sculpture, you know? Yeah. No, it's true, and it's I don't know. For me, also, it's. As a sculptor, it's really the only movement in which sculpture like was the primary um, communicator yeah. in the 20th century. I mean, you know, it was really painting century, but actually minimalism, you know, it was like, you know, all that, all that modern, the modernist dicta about like, you know, let's, we don't need pictorial space. Let's just keep it flat. And then, you know, the minimalist like, how about this? How about we just make an object? And they were like, oh, wait, wait, what? You know, that's not what we meant, you know, and then and then Michael Fried mounted that furious lawyerly attack in art and objecthood about the inherent theatricality of sculpture and like they're kind of basically ruining the world with this. Whereas, you know, it's anyway, that that whole moment and that debate is kind of super interesting. Oh, the good old days. Remember when people used to write about stuff or actually care? (laughs) (laughs) You mean other than angry? Other than auction prices? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) People would actually get upset, you know. That's why when that whole zombie formalism thing happened, and it was like, oh my God, someone's pushing back against some sort of collective, you know, unconscious aesthetic. It's like weird. You know, you get used to it. Yeah, that's Sort of like writing about a show. But remember when that, um, I don't know if you remember, the uh, Jacob Casse show at 303 that was like Mm -hmm. minimal sort of like shaped paintings that were... Super I don't minimal know if I remember pieces. that show, but I know his work. And people just, you know, lost their lunch, they're pissed off, and like, what is it? You know, and it's I, aggravated. I, I felt for him, Jacob Cassay, because I, you know, I think he's a good artist. He just, I don't know, the art world has these moments where it's kind of dangerous, and people just decide that you're the one that needs to be slaughtered or to pay the price for this whole thing at a right. certain point. Yeah, that's weird. And it, I just felt that that was really unfair. Yeah, there's a that that's happened a few, and a lot of times it happens due to the price of the work, which is really out of the artist's hands at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of true. You realize that with art careers, like right, it can be a runaway train, and you really you think you can control it, but you can't really control it. But you know, it is at the end of the day, you do have to be careful. It can be a dangerous place. I mean, there are people who <laughs> sounds like but, sounds like. East New York or something. You yeah. watch Take the Train one stop out no. in the art world. Yeah, and then well I, I don't know, like it's true though. It's but I've seen people, you know, 
I'm not going to name names, but like people whose work was selling for a hundred grand and now you can't, you can't sell it for three grand, Yeah, you know? And, and in a way it's like you, that's very, it sounds like, Oh, who cares? Like, but you can have a psychic implosion from that kind of stuff. That is Definitely. that kind of re- intense, like being, you know, thrust up and then torn down like that is not the kind of thing that everybody's psyche can handle. Not so at all. yeah, I think it's unwise to get into this game. If you care a lot, <laughs> <laughs> that's not right. bad if you're I know if you, you put mean. too much emotional investment in what quote unquote your work is doing or how people feel about the work or yeah you have to well, have, have a to little bit of a I don't give a shell. shit attitude you know like, yeah you have to have right it's a complicated I totally agree it's complicated you have to have you have to have the sensitivity to make something interesting yes and then you have to have like enough of a shell to to deal with the slings and arrows that will happen and you need to be kind of like a killer in a way, like a bit of an assassin. You got to be kind of hard. Like, you know, like how farmers, like, you know, the, the weak ones, they just get rid of them. They don't worry about, you know, whatever. They're yeah. just kind of harsh. Like there's a harshness to surviving as an artist, I think, which is is interesting. Well, back in the day, New York used to take care of that. Like you had to yeah. make it happen. And the other wild card is it. you used to have to, you know, get your reps in at the gym before you have your prize fight. Nowadays, yeah, you can get a, you could be a you know last year of grad school or something, and then then you're already selling work for three hundred thousand dollars, and you had a show at Werner or whatever, and people are yeah crucifying you because it's too soon. Do you, and, do you want you know, to name names? Do you want to name? <laughs> um, Even the no, most famous true. artist, no one knows their name these days, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's no, true. but when I, it's really true, when I moved to New York. Nobody cared if you went to grad school or what grad school. I mean, Yale had a little bit of a cachet. But yeah, it all changed when Matthew Barney came right out of Yale. Whatever that first drawing restraint show was at Gladstone. Came right out of Yale, MFA, Gladstone. No, no, he was a BA. Oh, he was was BA? Oh, I thought he was an MFA. MFA. That's the irony is he graduated from there as not an MFA student. Oh, okay. But that kind of changed the paradigm. He was handsome. Handsome. Well, also, you know, one of those guys who was so well formed, so young to be at that level. Oh yeah. Um, but anyway, what's funny is like somebody who's anomalous like that, incredibly anomalous, comes, and then that becomes the kind of system where suddenly people are trawling MFA shows. Right. But it's it's not really a good system. I think the system before was better, where nobody showed before thirty. Barely anybody ever showed before thirty. I remember. Uh, my wife and I both did work for a guy named Meyer Weissman who showed at Sonnevin. He was like having a show at like 28 or 29 and people were like, ooh, that's just like, you know, which is really interesting, right? It's like yeah. nobody before 30 had a show. Yeah. And I think it was better also because you had time to like build your vocabulary and you didn't have to feel like you were like being left behind if you weren't having shows in your 20s. You right. Know? Whereas for the most part, your 20s is like building your language. Yeah, I think I think it can work if you have shows, but that's not like blown up. You know what I mean? Like if you have that's a true few too. shows, yeah, where you're right. You get response and you see the work in that context. Yeah, you're right. But it's not like everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, look at this!" You know. And then as soon as right. you once that happens, it's almost like the kiss of death. If you get too much too fast, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of like everything. Like in music, like if you release a record when you're 21 and it blows up and yeah. it's all over. Like in five to seven years, you might be non-existent as creative. Yeah, like no, it's true. 
they're like whatever over it you know and if you're bubbling under the surface i've always written off my sort of like what my my one of my family members likes to call as a relatively known artist mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> write yeah. that off as it's better to be under the radar and no one knows who yeah. you are and you just can just keep trucking and doing your thing and you know you it, you don't have that yeah. like just like a moment and True. then it's over you know but i agree but uh i have a saying like like if you're an artist and you don't have you don't get have like this cash cow that you know you can sell a ton of these things or whatever and if you keep going and you're like ignored a little bit with a little bit of attention or whatever like you will be a better artist but you have to not go broke or crazy that's the key yeah you know what I mean? that's the other the part it's really good if you're one of these burrowing bubbling underneath the surface people but you got to do it you got to stay and you got and yeah. you got to stay in it you got to stay in it for like you know 10 years 15 years 20 years and that not everybody has like you know the ability to do that to keep going forward because you know things happen it's a slog that's the other it, thing we were, when we were talking about earlier about you know as you get older the trick is like you can it doesn't necessarily have to be geographic, but you can kind of isolate yourself and just keep making your work over and over again. But part yeah. of that work still having some potency is that it's in a discussion. It's not made in a vacuum to where you're just like beating a dead horse over and over again for the rest of your life, you know? Like it, no, I know. The being part of a, of it, you know, being part of that consciousness, I think is important. You know, it's like, it would be like a songwriter moving out, or they don't they're not really in the city anyway but just like isolating himself and just basically making the same record over and over again you know right not touring not like collaborating yeah it's it's a little bit of both i think to keep yourself yeah right that kind of balance but yeah but to stay in the conversation you need that i mean i don't know i need it yeah i had a couple I, i felt really lucky that i had a couple mentors when i was just coming out who had been around the block and been, you know, mm-hmm. doing it for a long time and gave me good advice about, you know, just like staying with it. Don't get too, you know, no, don't burn yourself out, diversify what you're doing. You know, I, I feel like that's important because whenever it's happening, when you first start showing your work, you sort of enter into, mm-hmm. you know, the discussion, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Like you think it's going to be that way forever, which, right. You know, it, generally is not going to be like they would tell oh, you yeah. about the ups and downs and you kind of have to live through the ups and downs but it's nice yeah. to know like if you're in a boat that you're going to get seasick <laughs> you know yeah yeah no like, right. somebody gives you a somebody gives you a little clue about that it's true yeah. yeah just look at art look at some old art forums it's kind of shocking the people who Isn't have the it? cover it's like crazy yeah um yeah so you have to kind of stay that course but that's good that you had some good advice i think it's a, it's well, I guess nowadays you can hear more, you can see more stories or whatever, but, mm-hmm. you know, back, you know, when I was first moving to New York, it, I, I feel like that was good to know, you know. That yeah, it's an interesting thing now. I was just talking with a friend of mine uh, who actually had my kind of first show that meant anything, a two-person show um, on Lower Broadway, but in 1994 or 93. Anyway, we were talking about being in your 50s and being a kind of art world survivor like there's a kind of <laughs> there's tattoo. a kind of sweetness to all of uh, yeah <laughs> we should get a tattoo but there's also like a kind of weird sweetness that creeps in now to like your contemporaries which yeah. is nice like it's like you've sometimes you've literally survived there's that because you know a lot of people who have died and totally. then 
and also have survived and continue to make art like at a high level or be involved, you know, promoting art or in the gallery world in a high level with serious artists. And you kind of look around and like when you see those people now, there's much more of like a sweetness between us, right? Like, hey, here we all are. And and they know your cultural and historical paradigm, like because there's less and less of you. Because so many people start to drop out or other people literally, you know, get sick and die. So it's like there's a preciousness to those people that you've gone through this thing uh, together with, which is kind of one of the silver linings, I think, of of getting older as an artist, for me anyway. completely agree. It's funny because I want to talk to more artists of that ilk, of the generations, Mm -hmm. you know, ahead of me. But a lot of times they're not so into technology or you know not as good at communicating on this wavelength but yeah I mean great stories to tell and there's such a and I feel that sometimes like when I go into galleries and the galleries are younger than I am which is always a little bit like oh did that happen did like I get older than the gallerist you know like and yeah oh yeah but then when they talk to you or when you meet some of these people you realize that they're like oh yeah I've you know I I've known your work it's kind of a cool I don't know, conversation and, and relationship to the yeah. existence of like this never ending machine of creativity, which thank right. God, you know. That yeah. And every few years it. it turns over new people come, but it's, it's kind it's of amazing. interesting. Yeah. I was like thinking about whatever Instagram and accessibility of artists or like, and I was having dinner with some uh, artists who are a generation older than me. And one of them was talking about, um, it's the sculptor John Newman, and he was talking about, <clears throat> I don't know, when he was like a young guy in New York, he applied for some uh, studio thing, and he didn't get it, and Saul LeWitt apparently like ran it. And so he was in the Union Square subway station, and he called the operator, got the number for Saul LeWitt, called up Saul LeWitt, <laughs> and, and the phone rings. And the guy picks up the phone, hello, and he's like, I want to speak to Saul Lewitt. He's like, this is Saul. And so and he starts complaining, like, I, like this, and he's like, kind of like, this is the kid you didn't give the studio to, kind of thing, right? <laughs> and so Saul Lewitt's like, look, just come down here. Here's the address of my loft. So he, like, just go, he leaves the subway, go, or whatever, takes the subway down to his loft, and then spends the afternoon, like, hanging out with Saul Lewitt and Saul Lewitt's girlfriend. Um, like, and then in the end, you know, he got, he ended up getting the studio, but I just love that. That's like a whole different kind of accessibility, right? right? right. Like, like yeah, everybody's downtown. Right, just, right. Come just come over. We'll down. talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think they smoke some weed. Like, yeah, we can work this out, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever, like just a very different, but I love that story that like directness of experience. Totally. And I guess in those days too, the communication was so, well, it wasn't like it is now to where you could if someone picked up the phone and called you, like, shit, this guy means business. Like, he, he's passionate. Right. I'll talk to this person. And there Whereas wasn't now even, it's like we're muting everything. It's just yeah. too much, you know? There wasn't even an answering machine. So you couldn't even, like, not pick up and see what the guy would say. Right. <laughs> you, somebody had to pick up that phone or you let it ring. Because I can remember having that as a kid where, like, the phone rings, like, oh, we're busy, don't answer it. And then you sit there and it rings. And there's that pregnant moment of, like, what if... Right. That is a something, you know, so yeah. people tended to pick up the phone. Or if you let it ring for like two minutes, it would eventually do that eh, 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 thing after, you know what I mean? And that's when you really, you're out of luck. <laughs> that's it. It's done. <laughs> Just got to call yeah, back later. I love those New York experiences, though, like those kind of uh, generational thing. Yeah. It's not, sure. Yeah, it's nice to be a part of it. So um, speaking of New York, you have a show up now. I do. 
if I'm not mistaken. And then it's on 26th Street, is that where it is? Or 25th? Correct. 26th. How long is it up? It's up until July 10th, but everybody should go today. Well, I mean, <laughs> definitely. And people can go to it, which is great. People can actually go. Yeah. I mean, because you were back, you know, for, you know, what was it, a couple of weeks ago? When's the last time you were here? Uh, last week. I've been in every week since the it's show. Back. But yeah. Like the, yeah, New York is back. People are seeing art. It's really nice. Just, it's amazing. It's full on, like, you know, responsibly. Like, people are vaccinated yeah, and wearing people, masks, but yeah. people are out there living in it. I tell you, it feels good because, you know, during the, the pandemic and listening to podcasts and hearing people talk about, New oh man, New York. It's like, you know, it's, yeah, like, I know. it's like the night of the living day. You know, people were out I there know. like digging through garbage cans and the city's over. Yeah. Everyone's moving out. And it's like, come on. It's, it's well, you have to experience art firsthand. I mean, you just have to go check it out. Totally. That's it. Especially, I would say with my show, it, you know, the scale relation to your body. So you go, they're all over life size. They're, you know, like eight feet tall, looming. Yeah. But then kind of sweet and goofy, like that thing. You have to go check it out. So, but art in general, you know, you just, ha I mean, this happens to me all the time. I don't know if it happens to you where, like, you love a show on Instagram, you go see it, you're like, uh uh. Like, oh, a show that you, yeah, a show, oh, it's like, uh. Is that what it looks like? <laughs> yeah, it's like some kind of online yeah. dating or something. And then you, <laughs> and then another thing that you think you're not, it looks eh, and you go and you love it. You yeah. know, you suddenly feel something with your body or a texture or whatever the heck it is that like a, a level of communication that you are not getting through your iPhone. It's almost so like these it, things have a physical form to it. Like a yeah, tactile nature to what they're actually made. Uh, yeah, I know it's true. Um, so, yeah, I think people are starved to see art. I know I was yeah. this whole year. I mean, I, I barely saw anything. I managed to see that Judd retrospective, and then that was it. It just isolated all winter till yeah, the spring. And it's it's been nice to go back. I mean, do you go out to Storm King and Dia? And I mean, there's a lot of great stuff, you know, upstate to see outside, which you kind of do. Yeah, it's funny. I don't. It's I'm going to do a show, two person show at Mother Gallery. Oh yeah, and the over the summer and so maybe I'll go back to Dia Beacon where I haven't been in a while I love that um, and Storm King I'm never over there my mom used to live over there but I'm never there I go more to Art Omai here yeah. mm -hmm. um, so that's like Zach. the sculpture park I go to so yeah yeah I mean I, I'm a huge Storm King and Dia Beacon fan we go a lot oh that's do you just, that's cool yeah Dia I can't get enough of that I mean it's it kind of in a way it, I don't want to say it's stale but they don't change it over a lot but I can't get enough of it. But it's still good to see. Yeah, yeah I'll go when I go to install this show over the summer. I'll go try and check it out. Yeah, but it is definitely nice to, to see work in real yeah, life. Yeah, I have to see that Magazino place. I haven't been there yet. Have you been there? No, I haven't. Yeah, so that's another one near, like, whatever, in the Hudson Valley. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff, you know, out there. I know. There. Well, I think, you know, that whole Sixth Borough thing is really true you know yeah. it's happening up there and i i grew up there and my mother lived around there so like after i graduated uh from RISD, i would visit her and there were no artists there then like there was and now it truly is uh it really a lot of young artists a lot of energy a lot of spaces it's a viable option for younger artists rather than crowding into yeah. brooklyn and sharing a place with a bunch of people there you can have a space and have some more space and fresh air paying $1,500 for a 200 square foot loft in a crappy right. building with no air conditioning. Right. 
for example. Yeah, just yeah. just one example. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to make the Poconos the new upstate. Like I want that to be the spot. That could yeah, that could happen too. But I've noticed like it's starting to happen. A little bit of trickle over here over the border into Connecticut. Um, there's a town called Torrington. It's kind of like, you know, post-industrial. It was like a mill town and then it's got the big box stores. But uh, I think uh, the pandemic, that and Hudson, New York have been two cities that have yeah. really changed a lot with a lot, of, a lot of young people moving in. Yeah, Hudson's cool too. There's a lot of great but But places. PA, I don't know. I mean... But I know that people are living over there too. Why not? Yeah, I mean, I'm a. I was born in Pittsburgh. I'm a Pennsylvania native, so you're a PA guy. Yeah, and the Poconos are kind of. It's it's not far. No, it's, it's not far. Resort like you could ski and I don't. Know, they got far. all those heart shaped tubs. You can stay in the. Exactly. That's all. You that's need what I remember. The, the advertisements. I haven't been over there in a long time. So romantic. What's that? Heart shaped saunas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But the taxes are better than New York too, because New York is like crazy with tax. Uh, I know. And no, your it's vote, true. your vote kind of hits it in a different way when you're in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that is unless they disenfranchise, unless the Trumpers disenfranchise. <laughs> I know. Yeah, because I, I teach at Penn State, so when we, when I pre-COVID, you know, commuting out mm -hmm. there, you would you see the signs. It gets rustic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a different vibe um, than upstate. No, it's, well, kind of, anyway, we have a lot to fix in our country, Brian. Yeah, that's a separate podcast. You we, know what? All, yeah. We need no income old. redistribution <laughs> in some form, but anyway, right. that's a whole different, well, yeah, we'll do the political podcast a different day, but we've been good. We haven't talked too much about the pandemic, very little about politics. We've kept yeah. it, which has been good. Family. Family. Art. Seeing art again. Definitely. Getting old, getting <laughs> the the silver lining of getting yeah, older. Yeah. The, the beauty of aging, like fine yeah. wine. Oh, really last question. Ripe fruit. Yeah. When you're working in your studio on these things, is it silence or are you listening to stuff? Like, what's what's the audio component? That's a really good question. You know what? Lately, it's been mostly silence. Yeah. Enjoying yeah. the quiet. Yeah, it's been mostly silence. I've mostly. You know, I used to do a lot of books on tape at certain points yeah. in when I would do like, you know, very sitting with clay and a lot of manual work. I would like sit down and put books on tape. But lately I haven't been doing that. I've been listening to occasionally have some music because now I have, you know, like the Spotify thing. Right. Um, so I don't know if I got to get something done. I just put on like a classic punk album, like the Sex Pistols or something like that. Just gets it done. Little energy in this. Little system. energy, yeah. Anger's an energy, yeah. Nice. Get the whole thing, get the whole. <laughs> th and uh, but lately, music-wise, mostly, I don't know, mostly jazz these days. You know, getting nice. older. The the musicianship, Brian. You can't argue with it. Just the the quality. Yeah, the the technical proficiency of the. I mean, I was a jazz DJ in college, so I, I oh, you were okay. I'm addicted, but also the importance of jazz, like to American culture, right? Like this kind of Creole art form that, like, the Europeans had to admit was better than what they were doing for the first time, right? Like, yep. and it was happening in real time, like on the radio, so it couldn't go through these levels, strata of society, and then be digested as high art. It was like high and low at the same time, like, and so I've come to really love just that whole thing 
I mean, high lowest thing we haven't really talked about in terms of my work, but I think it's a big component for me. And uh, I don't know, like you kind of feel it in that music. It's kind of, um, it's kind of really important, like for American culture and for world culture, in my opinion. So, yeah, I agree. It's I, I took a class in school um, about you know jazz and like the history and how it moved mm-hmm. from Africa. You know, well. It, when it became jazz out of African music in the Caribbean and mm-hmm. moving up the Mississippi, it's fascinating. And then it becomes the avant-garde of, you know, of culture right. in the States and, and linked to, you know, sort of cultural issues and strife and struggle. And I mean, it's, it's a really sort of compelling oh. historical document, you know, that never, I mean, it, it, it is what it is, but it never ages in a way, too. Like, if you put right. on, like, you know, a Cecil, Ta- like a, a Herbie Hancock record, you just feel it, you know? It's, it's, oh, uh, yeah. It's right there. Well, yeah. And you see, too, the relationship, let's say, between that and visual art. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that without even that idea of creating this free space, you know, to have these uh, spontaneous solos in the middle of things that, that you know, uh, Abex stuff would not have happened. Yeah. Like, it's just so obvious yeah, that, like, totally. you know, they're creating this moment and that's just, you know, being literally transferred to this kind of individual moment for the artist to kind of create something in that space. So I think it's a huge, hugely influential art form. Definitely. I have, I have, I have had two lives. My before I've seen and heard Spaces the Place by Sun Ra and after. <laughs> okay. I've, well, I'll have to listen to it. I've never heard it. Oh, really? That's uh, And the movie is amazing. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Spaces the Place. Check it out. Spaces the Place. It, I'm all over it. It rewired something. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. yeah. Don't you love that? Yes. When that happens and you suddenly get pushed in a new way or something, a little some space gets opened up for you. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, I've had, like, Koyana Scotsy when I saw that movie. It was just like, what? Like, you know, it's just, my mind <laughs> yeah. was blown, you know? Yeah, It's like, yeah. okay, I guess I'm going to live the rest of my life now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're doing it. Yeah. You're doing really great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm still at it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, well, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab my stuff out of the studio. I'm moving up in maybe a week's time or something, so just clear a little space for me out there. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, come br- just bring like a propane stove for cooking out there. Just yeah, 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 yeah. Why don't, you sure? Maybe you should make like the Berkshires the new, or the or here this part of Connecticut the new Poconos. Maybe, maybe yeah, maybe it's the new Poconos, the new upstate. Oh, but I guess you're going. You're always going out there to PSU anyway. That's the rub. It's like halfway. It's right on the way. Can we move Connecticut to in between here and? <laughs> Do you want to know a little-known fact that I think you might really enjoy? What's that? There was a war called the Penamite War in the 1700s because the King of England or one somebody basically mistakenly ascribed like the same land to people in Connecticut and people near Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and oh, there was wow. literally a, a war that went on for like. 20 years or 10 years or something crazy but it wasn't like a real war they would just like once in a while drive over and kind of shoot at each other and like maybe (laughs) i feel mccoy's yeah like maybe like one or two guys one guy was killed and one guy was injured over like years of this but it was an actual kind of thing between connecticut and pennsylvania between connecticut and pa not connected which makes it a real (laughs) that's what i mean they don't even border yeah but i think the bordering thing is also 
it's a bit of a modern concept. Like back in the day, you could have little duchies, yeah. like little islands that were just connected to yeah. other places. And then that was it. You had your fealty or whatever to this other place. And that's the way it went. But isn't and that, I don't know. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. To it, think that land was not defined at some point. We ran out. We're fresh out of land. <laughs> <laughs> there yeah, might be was, a couple but, islands somewhere but, out in the Pacific. But, but England was far away and they were, it probably didn't even understand what's happening. Like, okay, you take it. Right. No, right. you take, you know, it was <laughs> that, that kind of a situation. I'll let the people so, in Connecticut have it. Uh, no, the yeah. people in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, okay. I get it. You're, you're going over to PA. So I'll well, see you over there. Maybe. I'm over there sometimes. Sounds good. All right. Well, um, everyone go see your show. It's up through July 10, 10 and Thank follow you. you on Instagram. You're on Instagram, right? I am on Instagram. You have a website. I do have a website. It's all your name. Um, you, yeah, my name, it's one of the nice things about having a unique name. I'm very easy to find. Uh, agreed. Likewise. Yeah. There's almost no Alfreds. Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> we died off somewhere. That's it. It's three of them. Well, Brian, this has been a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks yeah, for inviting yeah. no, me and, and thanks for spending some time. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. Vision is produced, edited, and recorded by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast by going to soundandvisionpodcast.com. Many thanks to Carl for the great conversation. Make sure you check out his work, follow him on Instagram, check out his website, and when you can, go see his work in person. Uh, many thanks to Michael Lovett for the intro and Lullatone for the intro outro music. If you can, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. It really helps the podcast or any of the other platforms where you listen to it. Most of all, thank you all for listening to the podcast.